Oh crikey, it's another sickeningly positive perusal of an episode of Doctor Who. It's happy times and places in which I, Toby Haydock, watch an episode, try to guess what my special guest's favourite things about it are, and generally make observations and throw in a few facts. Hello, my name is Jeremy Bentham. I'm very pleased to nominate as my Doctor Who story for Toby's uh, Enterprise, Marco Polo. Uh, well, hello and welcome everybody. It's time for part four of the uh, Doctor Who classic, the missing seven-part historical adventure, Marco Polo, this episode, Wall of Lies. But hopefully it will be a monologue of truths uh, after that truncated there introduction from Jeremy Bentham, my guest, if you'd like to hear the whole thing, which is worth hearing. Um, but uh, early on with these podcasts, I realise you, you don't want the whole thing to introduce every single episode. So you get the whole one on uh, episode one uh, and then just a, a short reminder on the subsequent ones. But Jeremy's well worth listening to. And actually, because we have the advantage, I'm going to turn the fact that I'm flying by the seat of my pants to an advantage. Uh, as I record this, uh, episode three has gone out to patrons. Patrons are six months in advance. If you're not a patron and you're listening to this, you could have you could have been, oh, um, doused in facts and speculation and non-sectors and random unnecessary and probably slightly self-indulgent self-reflection. Uh, a whole when when you had a few more hairs on your head and a few fewer wrinkles around your brow. Um, but for the patrons, I'm recording this as episode three has gone out, and this is episode four. So it's um yeah I'm I'm <laughs> it's very much a work of desperation. But what that does mean is that we've had a little bit of feedback. Uh, that I can share because uh, we're sort of as live. So, and there's a lot of love. I'm very pleased to say for my guest Jeremy Bentham, who is a, a very self-effacing person who I don't think would acknowledge that he's one of the heroes of Doctor Who fandom, but he really is. Um, and and therefore Doctor Who as a as as a whole, because fandom in those early days, I think was was very important to you know to establish some of the stuff that we know now and to you know, teach us how to research, who to research, to, to speak to people that, you know, are now no longer available to us. All sorts of, now that any old divvy with a iPhone, raise his hand, can, uh, can get access to people. Uh, very, very different in those days. Very, very different. Um, you know, people were, were nothing like as accessible, nor as, I think, interested in talking in, in the same way that they are now. So um, I'm glad there's a lot of love for Jeremy. Uh, Frank Shale says, The Doctor and his many friends and allies may be seen as the hero of the show as it appears in fiction, but Jeremy Bentham is paramount as my hero of Doctor Who in real life. Without his efforts in the 1970s, I would never have found the portal to a deeper understanding of the series and everything it led to. My life would have been immeasurably poorer and I would not have found the friends I have or the ability to appreciate every creative enterprise in less in a less superficial way than I know what I like. I appreciate the work of talented people we don't see on screen because of JJB, the original explorer, the Marco Polo of my Doctor Who fandom. I think that's brilliantly put and therefore worth sharing uh, in its entirety. Thank you, Frank. Um, and Siobhan Galichaud adds, he's still wrong about the gunfighters, though. Ha ha ha. Well, I've just been writing a podcast about uh, Doctor Who, a celebration, and uh, uh, the, 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 the Haney books that Jeremy Bentham wrote the story assessments of, in which it was established that the gunfighters is the worst ever Doctor Who story, TM. So listen out for that. Um, it will actually have come out before this um, for for uh non-patrons but uh, for patrons who knows who knows depends where i am i don't know what's happening at the moment um uh and peter crocker tells us that because uh, in the singing sands i said there was a rumor in the 80s that it existed peter crocker says the rumor about the singing sands originates from telecon in 1987 while introducing the surprise screening of the faceless ones three at the time officially missing mick smallman mischievously said unfortunately we can't show the singing sands for copyright reasons but we do have this instead so therefore a doctor who fan done a joke 
uh, and its humorous nature completely bypassed the neural receptors of some of the Doctor Who fans in the audience. Who'd have thought that? And they took it on face value and repeated it as a fact. And it stuck. Oh, there's so many things going on there that are typical of Doctor Who fans uh, that it could almost be uh, uh, the, the entire experience bottled. Um uh, oh, that's my David Warner tribute. I'm recording this in the week of the death of David Warner, sadly. Uh, wonderful man, wonderful actor. Um, Michael Herbert tells us, Xenia Merton appeared in Space 99, of course, as Sandra. Yes, indeed. Sadly, no longer with us. Yes, I wrote her obit for The Guardian. Um, and David Gillespie gave me half a point for episode three because I, I, my choice and Jeremy Bentham sort of crossed over. Thank you, David. Um I still don't think I stand a chance. I think uh, Jeremy is a lot more scrupulous and scholastic and methodical uh, than I in the choices he's chosen, you know, the lighting and the director and uh, uh, something else. It doesn't matter. It's, uh, it's I think, the, probably the... I don't know. Do you like the bits where we choose? Oh, it's just something to hang a conversation on, isn't it? Uh, nothing to get too bogged down in. I, t I doubt anyone's keeping score. If you are... Well, well, you know, I'm not going to knock, I'm not going to hobby shame anybody. <laughs> so uh, uh, let's uh, let's get to episode four of Marco Polo, Wall of Lies. In three, I'm watching the loose cannon recon. In three, two, one, and of course it has to load. Here we go. Ah, oh, well, I mean, you know. Uh, a word about the recons as well. The fact that we can experience this in anything like uh, watchable form is delightful. Excuse me while I... I'm actually having carrot juice, so I expect to regenerate in an ignominious fashion very shortly. I'll fall off my exercise bike. So they're looking for Barbara in telesnap form. You can tell when it's a telesnap because they've got the sort of lines going down the screen. But there's so many photos and things here. I love that image. That's a really Doctor Who-y thing, isn't it? That cliffhanger of the, the 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 eyes moving in the wall. It's very much the thing of sort of, you know, Sinbad and, and perilous adventures and and the, and the sort of thing that was drama of the time that I, you know, adventure, you know, swashbuckling kind of adventure sort of stuff with caves and moving eyes. And uh, yes, Jimmy Gardner there uh, with a with a skull cap um i didn't even know we got many photos of him but yeah you can tell it's in there um but he's best best known as a sort of sydney bromley kind of figure you know bald head he wouldn't have needed a bald cap for most of his career bald head hair out the sides and big bushy beard he is one of those that you know who'd then play clowns for the royal shakespeare company it's a particular look he's the sort of guy who looks like he could have been a peasant in a in a terry gilliam film had sydney bromley not been available um Sidney Bromley never in a Doctor Who, um, oddly because he was one of those ubiquitous sort of character players. Uh, you know him from lots of is it Dragon Slayer and Terry Gilliam films, and and has never been in Doctor Who. So am I, why am I talking about him? He's in a couple of the Quatermasses as well, uh, one of them without his big whiskery beard. But uh, anyway, Sidney Bromley, wild-eyed, like I said, he looked like Cat Weasel basically. He wouldn't have needed makeup to play Cat Weasel, um, but never did a Doctor Who. And I got asked by uh, the patrons on my AMA. Liam sent a question saying, you know, which actors should have been in Doctor Who? And of course, my mind went completely blank. of thinking of all sorts of actors that were working in British television over 26 years who didn't do a Who. I love that question. Love that idea. And obviously you don't go, oh, the, the Jack Lemon, you know, trying to pick somebody that was working on British television. And I, I remember on a Gallifrey base forum, somebody saying, who's the list of actors you think should appear in Doctor Who? And somebody went, uh, Michael Shanks, uh, Richard Dean Anderson. You go, okay, you like Stargate, but let's let's try and get it to people who are likely to be in the, the sphere of Doctor Who. And I know Ben Browder and Ryan Carnes and a couple of uh, American-based actors have, have have ended up doing TV Doctor Who. But uh, I have I I have more fun with the exercise when you try and uh, you know. So as I say, the, I like I like the idea of thinking about actors that never appeared in TV Doctor Who during the classic era that could have done, you know, that were in the vicinity. Like, why did Charles Kay or Anthony Valentine never turn up? Um, and interesting, you know, why did Darren Nesbitt never appear in the show again after 
Marco Polo. You know, the chances are he was he was around. I suppose he was very much a 60s kind of figure. He had, I, I mean, it's on public record. He was, um, I, I think he did go to court for, for spanking his girlfriend. I think there was, some, there was some, something went on there. And I think that probably made his career take a backward step. And he'd poured all his money into a film called The Amorous Milkman that, um, you know, at a time when sort of... Um, sort of odd jobs or manual manual work or, or yeah or, or jobs particularly associated um you know you're, you're like a handyman or there's the confessions films aren't there where he's a window cleaner and a milkman and it's like the sort, sort of jobs done by men who call at your house but what if they were men who you bored wives to kiss uh, there's a whole genre of british films that are, and i fear Darren nesbitt was perhaps slightly late to the party with his amorous milkman um, and that perhaps his thought that uh, a, a, a British... Se- I've never seen it. Um, a British sex comedy was just what we needed. Uh, was perhaps... Was perhaps... Uh, not as on the zeitgeist as he might have thought. Uh, which is same because uh, he's... Uh, I, I think he's a really interesting actor. I love his soft, purred intonation here. And he looks magnificent. I mean, that costume they've got him in. They must have been very hot under the studio lights and that stuff. Um, but, you know, they're leather and they're studded and they're fur-lined and they're, and then you've got all these tapestries at the back. I mean, it looks great. I, I mean, I wonder how much we would have lost that it was in black and white and actually, you know, the real magnificence was in the studio. Um and uh, but I'll still, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have, I'm happy for it to come back so I can discover how disappointed. Oh, I've just dropped my cup of tea, uh, but miraculously, the cup has survived, and I've got a tiled floor, so I can, I can keep, I can keep. Don't sink yet. I can keep transmitting because uh, I don't like having to stop it because then it might knock your viewing out of sync. If you are viewing, a lot of people, a lot of people don't even watch the episode so i don't know what you're getting out of this because i've been about it so um yes sadly a cup of tea that was just at exactly the right temperature i don't have the uh the most robust of mouths so when it's too hot i you know i I have to let it cool down a bit and then it gets too cold very quickly so i have to it's like a shower i have to there's a there's a there's a there's an ideal point uh when i drink my tea um but if i was to do that now i'd have to lick it off the floor um this TARDIS crew is fantastic, isn't it? Because I, I, and I often think, I mean, I, th- I do think the Davison TARDIS is a little overcrowded, but it works really well here. I think something to do with the, the length of the stories and the, the, sp- the speed of the storytelling. Um, you know, but Bar- Barbara's been imperiled here. Susan is befriending Ping Cho. Ian is befriending Marco. Um, they can afford to take up the action if the Doctor vanishes. But everyone has a sort of role in the story. Um, and and I, I, I actually quite like... I know T- Tigana has, you know, is... is if, if we want to be cruel about it, is, is a pretty obvious villain. I refer you back to Kieran Hodgson's brilliant. I'm very, very trustworthy. Um, <laughs> which makes me laugh just to think about it. But I actually quite like the way they have to conduct themselves within the drama. They're all really there on sufferance for, for Marco. You know, um, Tigana is a peace envoy. Um, and, uh, and you know, the, 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 our heroes are, you know, interlopers on the journey. So that means there can be no outright hostility there has to be sort of veiled threats and accusations or or as the the uh, as as barbara's just done there it's less less veiled she actually goes but hang on i saw you and he's going no i didn't and and nobody can quite sort of you there can't be a big confrontation yet because it all has to be sort of bridged by by marco so you have this uneasiness where nobody quite trusts each other and uh, you know, um, Tigana. I think I used the line in running through. Quite. In fact, this is where American translation um, 
sometimes uh, uh, needs a, a rejig. I, I put about Tigana that he smiles and murders while he smiles. And my American editor changed this to he will smile and kill someone while he does so. And I went, no, no smiles and murders while he smiles is a quote. Shakespeare's Richard III to be says it, though it's also the kind of thing that Iago would say. But anyway, um, you know, it has to be phrased that way for it to ape the Shakespearean that I am referring back to. But never mind, Richard, actually, Tigana is more like Iago, who is called Honest Iago, and his great trick is that everybody thinks he's the most trustworthy person. And then when everyone buggers off, he turns to the audience and says, ha ha, I'm plotting all of this and I'm jealous and mean and all of that. And it's a great, it's the great thing about, you know, the face that people present um, in order to get where they want to get and the, and the dark, the, you know, the dark subconscious thoughts that they have or, or the dark underhand acts they are. Uh, putting into practice i think xenia merton is absolutely beautiful um uh and she, and and it's you know it's a it's a lovely story that she has that you have this you know this cheerful young girl who's so full of life who's on a journey to get married to somebody who's what 85 or something uh that she's never met you know that's a um and i and i and as i get older you know i i mean i, I i've got 17 year old and 22 year old and I, and I think about the things that I did when I was younger and think god I wish I'd appreciated those times more because that flush of youth there's nothing like you know life work everything gets in the way but also you know physical ability and I think the I think the ability to appreciate or to or to or to um how 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 we experience things is much more acute when we're we're younger um and i i yeah i i would like to have seen more stories for susan where she actually has a mate because they're quite proactive in this you know ping ping cho doesn't she she goes and nicks the tardis key and 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 so so it means that susan and her mate are kind of active within the drama because they have their little sort of teen gang uh and I think that's and, and and I when they give Susan something like that to do, I think that's that's much more interesting. That you know that's, I mean her her story in the Aztecs is quite which is is sort of similar to Ping Cho's, isn't it? In the Aztecs, she is promised to be married to somebody who's who's soon going to be killed for ceremony ceremonial reasons, and she's like, hang on, I'm not I'm not marrying somebody who's going to die. So actually, it's a similar kind of setup, but I think there's something a bit sadder about uh, the the idea that Ping Cho as she understands it now, is going to be committing her life or a significant part of her life. Um, you know, the 75-year-old husband isn't going, to, isn't going to die as quickly as the perfect victim, but it's still about, it is still about sub subordinating a, a young woman's vitality and potential to, uh, you know, to a, to a bloke and to a, a societal role. And I think that's really interesting. I think that's really... And, it, and it's done in a way... That is rather human without, you know, without, without being, you know, censorious or politicised. It's, it's more about the sort of human angle of it. And it's, uh, and it's rather sweet. Oh, and, and, and Ping Cho is really sort of active sort of character. Um, and, and I, and I like the fact that Marco is kind of the referee in the whole story. The story is called Marco Polo. Well, is it? I mean, is there anybody out there that calls it a journey to Cathay? That was another joke that was cut out of running through corridors. Um, the 60s version, uh, um, which I, 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 I sort of went went off on one about the, um, the, the titles that when the, the marvellous House Stammers and Walker released their Doctor Who um, uh the 60s 70s and 80s and the doc 2 handbooks which are all m marvelous things but i've i've always taken a step back from the and the official story titles of these stories are this um and in fact i don't think they call marco polo a journey to cathay do they or do they because i think they should if they call the daleks the daleks aka the, the mutants if they call uh edge of destruction inside a spaceship and if they call the massacre 
Massacre of Albemarle's Eve and most egregiously Mission to the Unknown Dalek Cutaway. Um, but but this because this this yeah this is called a journey to Cathay on the paperwork as much as indeed more than it is uh, anything else. And so I sort of mused. I said, are there you know are the Z cars fans you know um, uh, t- t- you know t- t- talking about that episode that's just set inside. To, you know, with 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 two of the coppers talking inside one of their vehicles as a budget saving exercise, and they they call it inside the car. And uh, you know, and the, and the following week, well, one of one of them went to see his girlfriend, and it was called a journey to Kathy. Um, <laughs> but um, I think that was probably uh, slightly too arcane and a and a joke in very inverted commas, uh, too far for for my American publisher. And probably fair enough. I I, I you know I I rue some of the things that. Uh, that are cut from from those volumes, but I also think some of them are probably fair enough. Um, Philip Vosberg, I, I, I like the fact that Akamat doesn't really like Tigana, uh, and I like the fact that Tigana's got an earring. Um, and Philip, I mean, Philip Voss would have been really young here, but he's you know again he's got the heavy makeup, hasn't he, and the and the and the the, the big sort of droopy moustache and the long hair. Um, Oh, and, and they're drinking. They're drinking out of those lovely china cups. I love all the little sort of properties, and oh, I think it would have looked so. It seems to me to have looked so convincing. Um, now, I mean, that's interesting in and of itself because to say, oh, it will have looked wonderful, and it will have looked authentic, and it will have really exuded the atmosphere and spirit of the time. But is that what Doctor Who fans want? This is this is my battle with Marco Polo. I love the fact that I love Marco Polo because it's a. Uh, a, a languid, intelligent, character-driven story. But I was brought to Doctor Who by laser guns firing at Nymons and Mandrills and, you know, exciting death scenes and, um, uh, you know, large villains and, and, you know, sci-fi adventures. So, you know, do I enjoy this because I have the luxury to do so because it exists as a counterpoint to what Doctor Who actually is? Um, oh, and this picture of Hartnell that I can see in front of me, uh, which I hadn't realised is from Marco Polo, because I think the quote is from the the quote is from the Daleks' master plan is in the middle of that book, Doctor Who: A Celebration, and it's Hartnell with a lamp outside the TARDIS, uh, and, and it has the quote, you know, "A citizen of the universe and a gentleman to boot," which I didn't really know what it meant when it was in the middle of Doctor Who: uh, A Celebration, but in fact, a lot of because the main picture illustrating the Hartnell era in the Radio Times 20th anniversary special. And they're the two big formative books, if you're a Doctor Who fan of my age. Doctor Who is Celebration, the Radio Times 20th anniversary special is not a book, it's just a large magazine. But they were the two things that gathered together for the first time. You know, the list of all the companions, the list of all the stories, a description of all the stories. And for somebody that had sort of grown up with the odd snatched copy of Doctor Who magazine uh, and the Target books... You know, my, my sphere of reference in terms of Doctor Who stories was, was quite small. In fact, so I say for fans of my age, you know, only for fans of my age that didn't have access to Doctor Who magazine, which I didn't. We lived in the countryside in the middle of nowhere. You occasionally pick one up for your news agents on holiday. So, in fact, probably most fans of my age probably had a better idea of the broader canvas of Doctor Who than I did, interestingly. I mean, the first time I'd heard of Dodo, Stephen... Katarina were in was in the Radio Times 25th anniversary special and its follow-up Doctor Who celebration. Obviously, this TARDIS crew were familiar to me because uh, of uh, the Five Faces of Doctor Who repeat. So you know, I and because of the Crusaders book, the Zabi book, you know, those early books, Doctor Who and an exciting adventure with the Daleks, or Doctor Who and the Daleks, which um, was weird because it was told from Ian's point of view. Ian does have a sort of special place in Doctor Who history, doesn't he, really? I mean, Sue Perryman in The Wonderful Adventures with the Wife in Space, which if you've never read, you should, you know, um, where where a a husband fan and a wife non-fan watch Doctor Who in order and slay some sacred cows in the process. But it's great watching it through Sue's very, you know, game involvement as as a non-fan. And, you know, she says that the series at this point should be called Ian. (laughs) And the Doctor is the sort of, yeah, the Doctor is the sort of slightly sideways character part and Ian is the leading hero type thing. Is is there a bit of a bromance going on between it? No, there's not. They're just 
They, they, they are two decent men who want to see the best in each other and who want to trust each other. But there's, there's some moments where Marco Polo really loses his temper and shouts and gets quite cross. And, and, and it's nice because it would be too, you know, it would be too boring if he was like a, you know, like a barobed Deep Space Nine alien. Do you know what I mean? The, the ones who were all just, the ones who were very, very good and very sincere. And I, and I, I, I don't know why I chose Deep Space Nine in any sort of American cyber, because I like Deep Space Nine because it actually has shades of darkness and grey more than any. I think I'm thinking of Philip Anglim's character. Those, you know, there's just those very sincere, um, boring, <laughs> boring sort of aliens who are good. Um, I may be mis-, mis remembering and mischaracterizing that but what i'm saying is marco could have been boring but he's actually got you know he's got a, he's got an edge to him uh, and he gets he gets cross with the travelers which i rather like and what what i think is the brilliance of this is that is that our heroes have to be underhand in order to get what they want and you know you've got marco here saying i'm sorry i doubted your word to Ghana. basically in this in this setup in this dynamic here you know, our, our heroes are the ones that have been dishonest and Tigana is the one who's now more trustworthy in Marco's eyes. But because the Doctor and Ian have been dishonest, now they've got motive, they want to get the ship back and we know how important that is. Um, and Marco, you know, he accepts that, you know, they want their property back, but he doesn't, he doesn't understand the bigger picture and because he is, you know, a savage to the doctor which is which is adds another dynamic it's that you know marco is a decent man and here he is getting cross which is like marco is a decent nice man but to the doctor you know he's a primitive and i and i love that and the doctor doesn't hide his contempt for that but that kind of makes us feel a bit sorry for marco because we know that marco's all right but in order to get the shit back which we know that they need and we need for the series to continue they have to they have to mislead marco so therefore, it's totally understandable in you poor, ignorant, stupid savage. I love William Hartnell's Doctor in this story. He's slightly different in this story um, from how he's been before and how he is afterwards. There's a there's a spikiness here, and I know he can be tetchy, but there's a there's an there's an alien impatience with the business of being the the. The tedious things that we need as human beings, like reason and explanation, and you know the doctor, the doctor hasn't got time for that. And and I and I, and and his contempt for Marco is really interesting because in within the dynamic of this, and actually the whole, you know Marco is a an especially reasonable and intelligent character who has decent motives, but because they clash with the doctor's motives, the doctor's like, well, you're you know you, this is a. You, um, uh, you know, you're. This is a flea biting to to me in the bigger picture. Um, this episode is, of course, I think I, I think it's this one, directed by John Crockett. Uh, I, I was quite pleased to find a picture of John Crockett uh, when I was going through some newspaper files. It was a picture of three men, and it said one of them was John Crockett. So of course I clipped the one and said, "Ah, oh, this this is John Crockett." And then Richard Bignall comes forward and goes, "Oh, I've got some pictures of John Crockett from his daughter." I was like, "God, I didn't even know he had a daughter." Yes, to careful where you did get, careful where you put your hush puppies. Who detective? Because uh, Mr. Bignall, you'll probably they'll probably you'll probably find that uh, uh, you're walking in the footsteps of Richard Bignall. And he sent this picture of John Crockett to him, and it's like, oh no, John Crockett's not that guy. He's the, he's he's the guy on the left of that guy, and the picture's miscaptioned, which is interesting in and of, of itself. Um, but we don't know much about. I mean, in, in fact, we know so little about him that within the making of the Aztecs, you know, one of the, you, do, you wouldn't normally do this, I don't think, and you certainly wouldn't do it now. You know, they say to John Ringham, one of the actors, you know, do you know what happened to John Crockett? He goes, oh yes, he's dead. So that is a revelation within the course of the documentary, whereas you wouldn't do that now. You wouldn't have somebody reveal, you know, in that way, I don't think, because because that stuff is, is, not, is sort of known now, but that definitely wasn't known. It was definitely where I found out that John Crockett was dead was when, was when, uh, John Ringham said so, uh, and it's a shame because he was never interviewed about that. You know, there's more reasons why it's a shame that somebody's dead, but uh, but uh, a, a shame that we missed him because I'd like to know sort of a bit more about 
him because he's only there for season one, like so many season one directors. Uh, he's there at the beginning and that's it. And we've been lucky enough to interview uh, John Gorry, for example. Uh, but Henrik Hirsch, who did The Reign of Terror, is a complete mystery. And John Crockett is sort of in the middle of that. And I don't know why he's any less of a mystery, really, than Henrik Hirsch, because we don't have any words for it. I think because Henrik Hirsch's involvement with the show is in itself surrounded by a bit of mystery but you know Hirsch went on to do Emmerdale and stuff like that whereas yeah John John Crockett does this episode and he does the Aztecs and then he disappears I remember Derek Ware saying to me that he didn't he thought uh, Crockett was a bit sort of superior about television um, but Derek felt that about quite a few people who worked in television it was a it was a bit of bugbear of Derek's I, I certainly think the way that you know the Aztecs is really um, uh, intelligently and elegantly directed uh, it would be interesting to see, you know, how Wall of Lies compares to the Hussein episodes around them. I think I think Hussein is an elegant director, but it's difficult to judge because obviously elegance is not what's required of uh, of the Cave People episode, and that's very much sort of dark and dirty and grimy and hazardous. Uh, whereas this has, you know. Um, uh, you know, f far more dialogue exchanges and uh, and character stuff, which we know from other work that Hussein is good at. So it would be interesting if we can, if if we could, when sh you know, shown two to a scene from each episode, um, if 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 we could, you know, you know, pick out the differences between Crockett and and Hussein. Both excellent directors, though, so I don't think there'd be any dip in quality. But it would be interest. It would be interesting to to compare. I mean, I mean, it would just be great to have them. But that would be another. You know, once the novelty had worn off, and we'd watch them for the first you know twenty five times. Yeah, I'll probably manage that in three weeks. Um, I might then uh, engage in that exercise. Uh, so I, I went off piste slightly there, uh, and I spilt my cup of tea. Um, see, the advantage of a tiled floor, the disadvantage is that usually when a cup hits it, it smashes. But uh, my where's Wally cup? I wonder if it's weakened it. Uh, well, I'll keep you posted on that. It's done okay. We lose cups a lot in this house. And I get quite emotionally attached to cups. Anyway, that's not, not, that's not what you've tuned in for. Um... So, but there are certain Doctor Who cups here, which if they do meet their maker, I will be very sad about. And I will blame somebody else for it, even if I'm the one that knocks it off. Because I I'm, I, I do that. Um, <laughs> well, they shouldn't have asked me that question that made me turn around and knock the cup off that was next to me and nobody else was anywhere near. Um, they shouldn't have initiated the series of events that led me to picking that cup out on this particular day when I was the one that knocked it off. And you know, Anyway, my favorite thing about wall of lies is i think is i think that i think that intelligent character dynamic that john lucarotti sets up whereby um you know decency becomes a weapon um to, you know to and 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 to prove that you're worth trusting with marco is you have to deal with him straight but unfortunately to get to get what they want our characters can't be straight with him they have to do underhand things uh, and Tigana sees that and manipulates that so it's those character dynamics that and, and, and then throw in the mix the doctor's contempt for pe people from earth particularly from the olden days uh, and uh, I think you've got some really interesting stuff there that is that is unique to this story um, the way that the characters interact and that the, and that the drama is dependent on on so much of that. I hope I haven't chosen something like that before. Jeremy Bentham, however, the the hero of uh, of uh, many people's uh, formative Doctor Who experiences. What's Jeremy going to choose? Let's. Uh, Let's click on him. And where where is he? Uh, Jeremy is here. Going to press. The Wall of Lies episode is as good a place as any to talk about the hole that's at the centre of our tale of Marco Polo. And it's the missing episodes. Because, as we all know, despite the best efforts of people going back some 40 plus years, 
Not a single episode has been recovered from this story. Not only that, but there isn't a single telesnap in existence. As far as I can see, there were no production photographers from the BBC on set when this episode was recorded. And this is so curious because if you, if you have a copy of Richard Molesworth's excellent book, White, he goes to great lengths to actually point out that an awful lot of prints were made of Marco Polo, probably more than uh, most others of the Doctor Who serials recorded in the 60s. So where the heck have they all gone? We know, for example, now that, say, a lot of some copies went to the Royal Navy. They had an arch their own archive based at Portsmouth. My, my own Uncle Pat, who served in, in the Mediterranean in the 1960s, does remember Doctor Who being one of the things that were shown as a 16mm telerecord, uh, 16mm film aboard the ship he was serving aboard, although typically he couldn't tell me which Doctor Who episode or episodes were, were shown by the Navy. You had interest from Disney, you had so many other people interested in this story, and yet nothing has ever happened to yield one single episode's recovery. And that's a shame, and it probably does explain, well, the Navy connection probably explains a little bit why so many episodes in the early 80s did turn up in the south of England. That's probably when the time the Navy was moving out the prints of their library and replacing them with video recordings. But again, no Marco Polo, so uh, sorry Toby, but for this episode we're basically just focusing on that which doesn't exist in the episode, The Wall of Lies. Well, I, I, I love that. And actually, I, I am working on, I've half written, I mean, a lot of my Indefinable Magic podcasts are half written. I sort of write them when I'm in the, in, in the mood or, or feel I can, you know, wax lyrical about a, a subject. So I occasionally just jot down, you know, bits and bobs and then go back to them and piece them together about missing episodes. And I, I do have a theory that um, the missing episodes are love for Doctor Who. Uh, in a way, but I won't go into great detail there. Although, uh, you know, I love the fact that Jeremy has chosen that. And before you write in, I think he was, you know, saying there's no telesnaps for Wall of Lies. We know there are telesnaps for Marco Polo, but of course, no, there are no telesnaps for Wall of Lies because it was John Crockett's episode and we have the terrorist telesnaps uh, because of what is Hussein. And again, there's the other beautiful thing is we find the telesnaps. We didn't, I was not responsible. Um, uh, the telesnaps are found, but actually... No telesnaps for Marco Polo are found. Telesnaps for loads of other stories are found. Not for season three. They weren't taken. Uh, a lot of the Troughton ones, though, Marcus Hearn found them, didn't he, in the BBC Written Archive. But there were some stories for which telesnaps were taken uh, that, for, that um, well, one, there are stories, there are telesnaps taken for stories that exist, so we don't really need them. Nobody's that bothered. Although I think it probably would be one interesting one day to look at the telesnaps compared to the episodes and go, you know, so how, how, how much do these really give an indication of what, what the episodes were like? You know, not, not much really, but they're better than nothing and they're interesting and fascinating. But even then, even with that, we didn't have the telesnaps from Marco Polo. For some reason, the, 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 the telesnaps kept by the BBC did not include those for Marco Polo. So you go, oh, that's a shame. Uh, it's like Enemy of the World Episode 4. Uh, for some reason, they they were missing. Maybe John Curie was ill that week, and of course, that became a moot point when the episode comes back. And you go, "Oh, this is it's another reason why this is particularly interesting to see because we don't actually have that that episode." Um, but then Marco Polo, uh, the director, finds the telesnaps in his attic. So, but but many years later, so these the, the, you know the jigsaw of Doctor episodes keeps being added to and and it, it, amazing isn't it that uh you know yeah of all the episodes of all the stories where six episodes of telesnaps existed in private hands just happened to be one where the bbc our main source of our telesnaps didn't have any at all but then added to that that means well you've got a seven-parter one episode isn't directed by that particular director, so we don't have the telesnaps for that. So then that adds to the murkiness. And, you know, I wonder if, you know, uh, well, uh, presumably as Richard Bignall has spoken to John Crockett's daughter, that that is a stone that has, has been 
uh, turned. Uh, but, uh, you know, wouldn't it be interesting? If, it's, it's a bit like the Terror of the Zygon stuff where, you know, you had that opening scene that was lost and missing and then the film turned up and then the sound turned up from a completely different source and they were melded together. And then because we can now colour stuff a lot easier because it only turned up in black and white film, somebody then has to colour it. So it's actually reassembled from three different sources. And I love all of that. So, uh, you know, I think it is a, it is a perfectly worthwhile thing for jeremy to choose the very fact that it is missing adds to its allure and adds to its luster and adds to our interest in it and i think is all part of that crazy mosaic that is being a doctor who fan uh i don't know why i didn't talk about that episode <laughs> segue on to sydney bromley i'm so sorry uh but he's a legend and i can now say this is the only doctor who podcast with a two-minute monologue about sydney bromley prompted by jimmy gardner who you know who is cut from the same cloth uh so but you know yeah we've got tigana's perd villainy i talked about that didn't i susan and ping Cho and the, and the dynamic i love the dynamic i think it's really it's really thoughtful drama because you put yourself in the positions of everybody and you can sort of empathize with them and almost sort of root for them and the fact that you're rooting for different characters who who, who have different desires makes for really interesting drama because you can pull in two different directions and you can be pulled equally strongly but those two things aren't compatible and that's I think when life gets interesting and and, and why I sometimes rue these times we live in where there are lots of absolutes in the arguments you see people having I, I'm coming fresh off last night just scrolling through Twitter where, <laughs> where people are at each other's throats about various things and you think and people sort of almost refuse to admit the flaws in their own argument. All of my arguments, points of view, I think, have flaws in them. Um, otherwise, we'd all think the same. Do you know what I mean? Um, um, but it's now a sign of weakness. To, so you see people sort of really digging in or doing really bad false equivalents or bad faith arguments rather than just going, yeah, I know that's a compromise to my morals, but 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 my morals are nonetheless this because of this, that and the other. Uh, but n nobody's allowed to be wrong, I think, on Twitter. And even if you are, you can then delete it and pretend it never happened uh, <laughs> or on forums or whatever. And I think and I think this sort of drama shows that you can be right and wrong at the same time. You can be good and bad. Uh, at the same time, it can both be good, but both require, but both need different things. And then the audience has to decide. You know, I don't think anyone watching this wants Marco to fail, of course, because he's nice, he's perfectly reasonable. But if his success is at the expense of the travellers, well, it's called Doctor Who. It's, it's our program, so Marco has to. So that's and and so you have to go. Well, so how are we gonna how are we gonna reach a compromise with this as a as a as a viewing experience? And I think that's really interesting drama. It's not blown up military bases or monsters in the shadows or, or all of that but uh, we can afford it uh, and and we can afford it even more because we can't see it because then we can speculate and imagine and you know conjure conjure maybe more brilliance than it had in our thoughts but a lot of people I respect uh, really like it and I, I I'm I've very much been won over by the experience of 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 watching it um because of the you know the sort of elegant and empathic way that the story is told so uh not a lie to be had out of my mouth uh but let's see what happens because we've got a new arrival next week we have a, a rider from shang tu uh who is gonna gallop uh through uh the doors of Haydoak Towers. So uh, I better get my mop out and uh, clean up the tea and uh, gently place my Where's Wally mug in the sink and hope that it still holds water. Uh, but in the meantime, I uh, uh, hope you're having fun wherever you are and that the sun is shining on you and your loved ones. But until next time, goodbye. Thanks ever so much for listening to Happy Times and Places, which is presented by me, Toby Haydoke, and my special guest this time around is J. Jeremy Bentham. I'm very grateful to him, as I am, to the many patrons who make these podcasts possible, and they include Risto Matti Sarillo, Frank Shales, David Trainier, Stephen White, Sidney Wilson, Andrew Wilson, 
Andrew Willis, Michael Williams, Rich Wiggins, Adam Westwood, Gary Wales, Apollo C. Vermouth, Reynard Toombs, Sabrina Tirabassi, Nick Temple, Neil Tate, Matt Sawyer, Jim Sankster, Mark Sandham, John Rivers, Dylan Reese, and Nigel Bromley together at last. Scott Pride, Kevin Parker, Jonathan Potter, Keith Piddy, Melvin Pena, Dave Owen, Graham Knott, Matthew Newton, Nathan Moore, Stuart Mitchell, and Kevin West. The music is by Dave Gates, the artwork Dylan Patterson. Would you like to be mentioned in the end credits? Then you can become a patron. It is one of the benefits, if you consider such a thing to be such a thing. Uh, the uh, higher up the ladder you go, because there are various tiers, the more often you'd get mentioned in the credits. But that's not all you get, no sorry, Bob. You get advanced releases, bonus material, your very own special podcast that nobody else gets, and a monthly Ask Me Anything, uh, and various, various uh, other things. So, And you also get the joy of knowing that you have contributed to um, enabling me to spend proper time doing these, hopefully to broadcast standard and uh, uh, to research properly uh, the ones that are, require slightly more fastidious work than the off-the-top-of-my-head uh, <laughs> desperation for uh, inspiration that uh, these ones are. But um, I, I used to get, you know, as I say, I edit the properly, and I've I've paid the guy who does the music, and you know I try and do it to try and be professional, uh, and most importantly, uh, keep them ad free. I do not take a shilling from any hawker of wares, from any. Um, we send you the the ingredients for the food, and you cook it at home, or razors, or internet safety, whatever that they are. Things they seem to be the three adverts that on everything I listen to, uh, so yeah, so no advertising either, and that's all part and parcel of the Patreon model that these go by. However, you know, the world's going to hell in a handcart. Nobody's got any money, so I totally understand if uh, all you can do is listen, and I'm grateful to you for that. Uh, I hope you know. I hope. In, an, in, in a world where I can't give you any money either, I can at least uh, make your day pass slightly better. If, however, you suddenly become flush or, um, you know, you have a good day or you, you just um, decide that my needs are greater than yours, whatever, you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock and bung any amount of money in that pot whenever you like. There's no obligation for a monthly commitment, uh, which is what the patron pages patreon is patreon.com forward slash toby haydoke kofi is to kofi.com forward slash uh, toby haydoke as i say patreon is a monthly commitment uh, but that you can cancel at any time and if you pay for a year in advance you get 10 percent off your total and the tiers start from three pounds and go right up to um I, I think 200 pounds nobody pays 200 pounds and i wouldn't expect them to but you know you put that in there just in case um but uh yeah so you can do that or you can do what costs you nothing which is to go to itunes or spotify or podbean or wherever you get your podcasts and leave these a five-star rating and some lines of review and tell your friends uh plug them on cyberspace say nice things any way you can that is visible because that helps to tickle my algorithms and when my algorithms get tickled they smile and you can see their beam from cyberspace. So if you could do any of those things, they would be really, really helpful. But if not, mostly, thanks for listening. And, you know, if you are feeling the pinch, uh, you know, we're, we're all in this together and we will get there. And I totally get it. You can follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydock. These podcasts have their own stream at Haydoke Podcasts, and I also run a comedy club called at uh, called Excess Malarkey. It's not called at Excess Malarkey, but that, fortunately, is its Twitter feed, so that fluff turns into a plug. At Excess Malarkey, an X, an S, and the word Malarkey, and that's a comedy club that runs every Tuesday night in Manchester and has done for 25 years. That's a career trajectory for you. I've been at the same place 
for 25 years. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but it's a good, it's a good comedy club. It's won many, many awards uh, and we get uh, fantastic comedians and charge as little as possible for them. It runs on a non-profit making basis, actually by design rather than incompetence. Uh, and there's an online version, twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey, uh, which we did during the pandemic. Uh, because obviously we couldn't go out and so we were unfettered by geography so instead of getting the best acts from the United Kingdom we got the best acts from the United Kingdom and around the world and we put an archive of stuff up there to stand as a monument to those dark days and they're slightly different from the live uh, on stage shows because of course stand up on stage is very different to stand up to a computer screen and some acts experimented and some didn't but uh, we had all sorts Mark Watson, James Acaster, Nick Nish Kumar, Ed Gamble, Eddie Pepitone, uh, Cameron Esposito, Naomi Perrigan, uh, Alice Fraser from Australia, Randy Feltface, oh, all sorts of people, as I say, international rosters. And that's on twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey, where there are the various highlights and a monthly show that we, we, we still do a show online once a month on the first Sunday of every month at 8 pm GMT. And that is free at the point of contact uh, but we do encourage donations but again there is no obligation and you can join in by typing things into your computer and all sorts so come join us uh, i know most of you who listen to my doctor who stuff couldn't give a monkeys about the fact that i'm a comedian uh, but you know what uh, most of the comedians that i've worked with over the past 20 years couldn't give a monkeys about doc 2 till they get cast in doc 2 and then apparently it's always been their favorite thing I can't believe I said that. But actually, I quite enjoyed so doing. And it's hidden at the end. Nobody's noticed. Shh, this is our secret. Uh, I don't know what the percentage is of people that listen right to the end. But I know some of you do. So hello, those that stick it out. Usually, probably because you're jogging and this is just marginally less painful than stopping to ferret around for your phone. Or I know a lot of people listen when they're walking their dog. I like listening to a podcast when I walk my dog. Anyway, not going to be an epic uh, post-credits today because uh, I can't really think of anything and it's quite a busy week for me this week with the other work, the work that actually, uh, you know, keeps the wolf from the door. Um, I can hear him baying outside. Actually, uh, no, there are no wolves in the United Kingdom, but I can hear the foxes outside sometimes at this time of night and i think i think those fellas need a safe word i really do apparently they're up to sauciness but it doesn't sound like an awful lot of fun from where i'm listening um i came to face to face with one the other day and uh, it looked fairly chilled out which is not the impression given by their cries at midnight uh anyway um i hope you enjoyed that uh, more Marco Polo. I was, as I think I've alluded to this, haven't I? No, I've alluded, I just said it. Uh, I was slightly dreading this one because uh, definitely one of the stories I'm least least familiar with. But um, I'm really enjoying it. I hope you are too, and I hope the sun is shining on you wherever you are. And uh, isn't Jeremy Bentham lovely? I've been having some feedback from patrons, as I say, and Jeremy is going down very well. And I'm glad it's not just me. Uh, who holds him in such affection. Until the next time, though, um, that's, that's it. That's it. Go away.